This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our next speaker is Tom Hope, who's a colleague of mine at UCSF. He's an associate professor in residence in the abdominal imaging and nuclear medicine sections at UCSF. Uh, his main research is on novel imaging agents and the use of um, peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. He's going to be providing a brief overview of imaging as well as therapeutics uh, using these radionuclide uh, conjugates. Uh, so, Tom, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Dr. Bergsland. I didn't expect to have to move the microphone down after Dr. Bergsland gave a talk. Okay, so I'm going to start with a talk on imaging and then a talk immediately afterwards on PRT and peptide receptor radionuclide therapy. So in here, I just want to sort of give a background on CT, MR, SPECT, and PET, what these imaging modalities are, sort of what you can expect from them so you're a little more familiar with the terms, as you all probably have gotten all of these types of imaging studies throughout your course of being a uh, patient with neuroendocrine tumor. So I'm going to start with uh, CT and MR, which we oftentimes called conventional imaging, and then talk about SPECT imaging. I think some people aren't totally familiar with that modality is because we don't talk about it a lot, and then obviously end with somatostatin receptor PET, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. Okay, CT and MRI. So this is a CT scanner. I think everyone, has anyone in this room not had a CT? Who's a patient, I should say? Okay, so everyone gets a CT scan. This is usually the first time you meet the medical community is through this hole, and that thing will spin. It goes, and spins around, and what it's doing is it's shooting radiation through you as a patient, which sounds sort of crazy, and then it has a detector to detect how much radiation gets through you, and so CT scanners uh, detect density. So here's a non-contrast CT on the right, and the numbers there on the left are actually the values of each pixel, and the pixel, in essence, is a map of the density in your body, and so that way we can tell the difference between a bone, which in this case is white, fat is darker black, and then soft tissue like the liver and the kidneys are this intermediate gray. And so a CT scan is doing one thing only, which is measuring density. Now here, in this case, it happens to be an adrenal adenoma, so it's not that relevant. Now the thing with CT that's interesting and the thing that you can change about it is by giving iodinated contrast. So we can inject in your vein, obviously, a big bolus, about 150 mLs of, of fluid, and that fluid contains iodine. And iodine is very dense, and so wherever the iodine is looks whiter. Okay, So we can actually track where the iodine goes in your body and look for lesions in the liver and in the pancreas, and it helps us get contrast in the body to allow us to see where lesions are. Okay, Now this is going to scroll through that, which isn't particularly helpful in this setting, but there are metastasis going by you really fast. Okay. This, on the other hand, is an MRI. It's a very, very different imaging modality. It's a bigger machine. It's heavier. Some of these weigh up to 25 tons, which is sort of crazy. Uh, it doesn't spin, but it makes even louder noises, right? So you're all familiar. You go inside of this thing, it goes, ah, bah, 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 you know, and it's like you have earplugs in. It's claustrophobic. The bore is very small. But the thing that's unique about MR is it's not imaging density at all. So here's examples of images that comes from the MRI, and it's measuring something called proton spins. 
It's a little taking me about two days to explain that, uh, how MRI works. But in essence, the protons line up in the magnetic field, and we're doing things to the protons. And this big magnet allows us to image the protons. And you can see how different the types of images you get off an MRI are. And it allows us to get more contrast in those soft tissues. So with CT, you can just give iodine and MR. We can use T2-weighted images, T1-weighted images, and then we can give contrast. And I don't want you to memorize or think much about all these contrast agencies. But there's a lot of contrast agents in MRI, okay? There's probably, I don't know, anyone never counted them all, but something like 10 contrast agents. They all have varying different properties and can allow us to do slightly different things. And obviously, I'll talk about a couple of them only in particular. Now, in general, with contrast agents, we're worried a little bit about some toxicities. And you might be familiar with this. So actually, UCSF, uh, this is before I came to UCSF, originally described this disease called nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, which is where the gadolinium from those contrast agents comes out of the chelator and deposits in your skin, which is a little scary. And that will cause this fibrosing dermopathy. It makes your tissues a little thicker. And we figured out that it was only associated in people who are on dialysis or significant at renal failure. So this is a disease that only exists because humans inject people with gadolinium, and now it no longer exists because we no longer give people with renal failure gadolinium. And we also have newer versions of those contrast agents. I showed you that whole big list. Some of those contrast agents don't have this side effect, and so now we only use those ones. So this disease, in essence, has no longer been reported. Okay? Now there is another thing that happens where gadolinium gets deposited in your brain, and I think this is very concerning for most people. I don't want something deposited in my brain that I don't want there. Uh, and that's true. It does happen. But these newer, safer ones have much less gadolinium deposited. And also, I should note that we have no idea what the toxicity is from that. It hasn't been shown to be correlated with anything. And we don't even know how to look for the toxicity. So we do know that in some patients, the gadolinium goes there. We don't know what it means. And I think in the setting of someone who has cancer, who has to worry about other things, this is one you shouldn't put too much attention to. But it's something to keep in mind. Now, the thing I do like the most is something called the hepatobiliary phase imaging. Okay? And I think many of you have had what I would call an EOVIST MRI or gadoxetate disodium. This is a unique contrast agent in MR that gets taken up by your liver. And you can see on the left side there how the liver is the whitest thing on that screen. And that's because normal liver takes up this contrast agent, and the liver becomes whiter and whiter. And the tumors, you can see the tumors are black, very black. Okay? And that gives us really nice contrast in the liver between the tumor in the liver and the background liver, which allows us to measure the lesions very accurately. And if we're trying to follow patients over time, this type of MRI is the best way to follow patients with hepatic dominant or liver dominant neuroendocrine tumors. So hepatobiliary phase imaging is a unique type of contrast that we administer in the MRI to allow us to better see liver metastases. Okay? And over on the right here, you can see the yellowness is from a dotatate pet, or actually in this case a dotatoc pet, and we'll talk about that obviously in a little bit. So that's a little background on CT and MRI, and I think in our breakout sessions in this afternoon, if there's any more questions, because I know everyone has a ton of questions about these different modalities, you're welcome to ask them. The next thing I talk about is called planar imaging versus SPECT imaging. And what am I talking about? So this here is a different scanner. And I will say most of you don't get imaged in this scanner. This is the SPECT scanner from our pediatric hospital, which is why it, it looks like a forest. <laughs> not, not as relevant for the neuroendocrine tumor adult population, but for our pediatric patients, it's very nice. The thing that's unique in this, and let me see, I can't really shine anything. It has these two heads. You can see they're sort of 
over on, on top and on bottom there. And those heads will be able to move around the patient, okay? And usually they become like a right angle and they rotate around the patient. And as they rotate around the patient, they take pictures of the patient in the radioactivity we've injected to give us an image. So here's an example. We have a patient, right? We inject some radioactivity that goes inside of the patient, okay? And that radioactivity will decay and the detector will detect where that is, okay? And then we take the detector and we go up and down along the body and we can create a planar image. So this is a whole body image where that little head is going up and down the patient, and we get a single image that's along the entire length of the patient. In this case, it's a normal image. There's no evidence of disease on this, but this would be planar imaging, okay? That head just goes up and down the length of a patient. The other thing you can do here is you can take the same detector, okay? You have the activity inside the patient, and let's see if this is gonna work, okay? It's detected, and that head is gonna rotate around the patient, okay? Go all the way around the patient, and as it goes all the way around the patient, we can then take all of those projections of the patient and create an image in 3D of the patient to allow us to create axial reconstructions. So we can then look, just like a CT scan or an MRI, look through the patient. That's called a SPECT image. So SPECT is this rotating of the head around the patient. Planar imaging is going along the patient. It's using the same camera and the same radioactivity to get the same type of information. I'm not sure that makes any sense. I'm trying to do my best on SPECT. I'm not, not the best explainer of SPECT imaging. And this is what we use with Octrea scan, right? So when you do an Octrea scan, and most of us aren't getting these anymore, but you would use planar and SPECT imaging to image the patient multiple times after the injection of the radioactivity. And I'll come back to SPECT imaging in my next talk in PRT because I think SPECT is going to start to have a resurgence again as we start understanding how to use SPECT imaging in the setting of therapy, okay? So although right now there's sort of a lull because most people aren't doing Octrea scans anymore. So now we'll end with somatostatin receptor PET. So let's talk about PET. So PET is a very different modality, right? We have this ring that the patient goes through, just like an MR or CT, you go through a ring. We inject the radioactivity in the patient, which decays, and the decay is really unusual. It comes off, this is the positron, comes out of your glucose or wherever it is, and then that actually decays again. So there's actually two decays, it gets sort of confusing. And now we have two photons that go exactly the opposite directions. And then our detector detects those two photons, and now we can localize where the activity came from in the original way. And I just want to put this picture up. This is our PET-CT on Friday. Just to give you an idea, this stuff is very complicated. <laughs> it's, a, it's pretty amazing that these machines can detect two photons in an, I'm talking like 400 picosecond time range and localize the activity within a body. It's a, the, the engineering and technology behind this is really unbelievable. And we're getting our new PET-CT in this center, so this will be nice as we get better technology and improve as we go along. But the point being that PET to a certain extent is unbelievable just to me that we can actually use a cyclotron to make this radioactivity, label it in a chemistry way, inject it into a patient, have this machine that somehow miraculously can figure out what it is. So it's actually a pretty remarkable thing. Now, the thing that's, I think, to some patients confusing is a PET scan is a imaging technology but what's unique about it is actually the radioactivity you inject into a patient. So not all pets are the same, right? We have here four different types of radioactivity or radio tracers we inject into the patient. So on the far left is the FDG pet or a sugar pet. Um, the mi middle right is the dototoc, or looks identical to a dotatate pet. Sodium fluoride in the middle left, that's to look at bones. So in essence, by in injecting different types of radio tracers, you can look at different things. So not all pets are the same, and it depends on what was injected into your body, what the scanner's actually imaging to tell us where different things are. So we can look at different physiologies by injecting different activities. 
Now, in the case of dotatate or somatostatin receptor PET, we're injecting an octreotide analog, right? So Dr. Bergsland mentioned this idea of the somatostatin receptor and the somatostatin hormone. So on the right side of this molecule in blue is this somatostatin analog. This part of the molecule looks like somatostatin and is going to bind to the somatostatin receptor and go into the body. The left side of the molecule is a chelator. It's called DOTA, and it binds to anything, any radio metal you want. So it can be gallium in the case of imaging, or as we'll talk about in the next talk, lutetium, right? So we have DOTA, TATE, and that will bind to the somatostatin receptors and take gallium or the radioactivity into the patient's body. So here, for example, is that case I showed you with SPECT imaging, right? So we have the planar imaging, and then we did our SPECT imaging of the abdomen, and it was negative. And lo and behold, we then have a PET image using dotatate PET, the exact same patient imaged initially with an Octrea scan, and now we have a dotatate PET. Now, if you look at the dotatate PET and then look at an axial slices, we get a PET on the left there and the axial CT, and we can fuse those together and see multiple pancreatic lesions in this patient. Right, that were totally missed on the Actria scan. And that's where the power of the dotatate PET comes out, or these somatostatin receptor PETs, is the increased sensitivity for these smaller lesions. And it, it incredibly outperforms Actria scan, and in essence is restaging all the patients who are imaged with it. Now, I think most patients are now getting this, so the idea of uh, stage migration based on the imaging is sort of dying down, thankfully. But this is why we do this, because of our ability to see very accurately these small lesions. The other reason is this takes two hours. Right? You come in, you get injected, you get imaged an hour later, and you go home. An Octrea scan, you get injected, four hours later you get imaged, you come back the next day, maybe you come back a third or fourth day. It's very impactful in terms of patient lifespan, you know, having to get out of work, et cetera. So it's much easier for patients to get this type of study. Here's another example of a patient. This is a patient who had a terminal ileal resection for their small bowel primary, and you can see the surgical clips there on the top in the circle, and there's focal activity in the middle bottom there, which is the residual disease in the patient. That's the only disease in this patient, and there would be no other way to tell that this was neuroendocrine tumor other than this imaging modality. Now, admittedly, in this case, it doesn't really change much in the sense that you're not going to go you know, radiate that, give PRT or anything else, but at least now we know where it is. Now we can use a specific conventional imaging modality like CT to follow that lesion because we know what it is and we can follow it for growth over time, right? It allows us to localize our imaging follow-up instead of not knowing where any of the disease is. Now, Dr. Bergsland mentioned this difference between FDG and somatostatin receptor PET, and I just put some uh, things up here. On the left there with the FDG, and I think this is a little confusing even to our schedulers about the preparation. When you're doing an FDG or a sugar PET, you have to fast for six hours, and I'm sure you're familiar with this if you've had one of them. With a somatostatin receptor PET, sugar doesn't impact the imaging, so you don't need to fast or anything overnight. So that's, I think, one of the important differences between the two uh, four patients. The other thing is on the somatostatin receptor PET, we try to schedule it before your next dose of lanreotide or sandostatin. So if you're taking long-acting somatostatin analog therapies like uh, sandostatin or lanreotide, we try to schedule it right before your next dose so we have the lowest blood levels of that, uh, that agent. And the other thing uh, Dr. Bergson also mentioned is as you get more aggressive, your expression of your somatostatin receptor goes down and the uptake on your FDG or sugar pet goes up. So the higher grade, more aggressive tumors are better imaged with FDG, and the two can tell us a lot about the disease characteristics in the patients, right? If you have low uptake on the somatostatin receptor pet, that will give us some ideas to, in terms of uh, prognosis and aggressiveness in the patient. Okay. 
So I put in down here, conventional imaging still matters. I'm not sure where that showed up, but this is my last point I want to make. The effect of technique on measurement. And I think this is something a lot of patients don't really understand, and maybe not even a lot of clinicians think about. But when you have different imaging modalities, a CT, an MRI, a PET, they can't all be compared one-to-one-to-one. -to -one -to -one. And this is really relevant in the neuroendocrine tumor population because neuroendocrine tumors overall grow very slowly. Okay, and so accuracy of measurement is really important to tell if there's growth in a tumor if your tumor is growing slowly. And so here's a patient who got a dotatate PET MRI. So all of these images were taken at the same time. So if I measured the lesion on the arterial phase, so right after we gave the contrast, it measured 2.6 centimeters. If I waited to the portal venous phase, it measured 1.5 centimeters. If I measured it on the hepatobiliary phase, it measured 1.7 centimeters. And then on dotatate or dotatoc, we have this uptake. Now, all of these things you can see just in the same imaging study, there's different ways to measure the tumor that can be very varied. And now if you think about it, I'm going to go back and compare to a CT, what of this do I compare back to the CT the patient had previously? So unless there's frank progression, it's very hard to tell if there's any subtle progression in that patient. And so I think that's really important to keep in mind. So here's an example of a patient with a mid-gut neuroendocrine tumor. And some places like to use a lot of dotatate PET. And you can see here they started with an FDG PET, which was negative, and then three dotatate PETs over time in this patient with liver-dominant disease. Now, I was asked to see whether or not the patient was progressing to see if we needed to do something, and we only had non-contrast CTs to look at. I have no, I can't even see a single lesion. This liver is filled with tumor, and we can't see anything, right? And so the point is, depending on where your tumor is, you need to choose a specific type of conventional imaging to follow that tumor over time in order to determine whether or not it's progressing. And in this case, it was very hard to tell if anything was progressing or not. So I want to make a couple comments of things coming soon. So first of all, I'd like to highlight University of Iowa, where we're going to hear Tom Odoricio talk in a bit, submit an NDA for gallium-68 dotatoc. And this is actually particularly important. How many people here have had a hard time getting a dotatate PET because of availability of the radio tracer? It's got to be more than zero. Come on. Two? There's more? Okay. I will take that back. Maybe it won't have any impact if everyone can get their dotatate PETs easily. I find it very hard to get patients on the schedule sometimes because the radio tracer is not as widely available, and this will help uh, impact that. Secondly, there's this company, Curium, that is annou they announced a uh, sick copper 64 dotatate. So this can be made centrally and distributed. This might also help increase the availability of somatostatin receptor PET. Again, if it's not an issue, it's not an issue. Uh, but if it is, this would help uh, limit that uh, limitation in terms of the availability of dotatate. And then there's also trials for a new imaging compound, uh, gallium-68 OPS202, uh, which is being developed by Ipsen, which is trying to also have another imaging compound. So there's a lot of development on improving and increasing accessibility to somatostatin receptor PET, which I think will have an impact on patient uh, access moving forward. So in summary, conventional imaging is an important modality, but somatostatin receptor PET and really is really important providing information on staging. And I think it's really important that conventional imaging oftentimes should be used more frequently than somatostatin receptor PET to follow patients over time because of its ability to measure and look at changes in lesions more accurately. So thank you very much, and I think this should go to the next talk. <laughs> I thought I'd have two talks separated out, so now they go back to back. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.